I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Today's episode is an action-packed double feature that feels like it's been pulled directly from a cyberpunk novel. That's right, today's episode is all about railway strikes and killer robots. It's hard to be a railway worker in America. The schedules are a nightmare. They're the kind of working conditions that can make someone real sick. Just, Just don't try to use your sick days. So facing a railway strike, Congress passed legislation to prevent it all at the behest of the White House. And we'll get into that, and then we'll also talk about San Francisco. The city by the bay has written rules for killer robots. SF won't have the fir- won't have the first police department in America that's killed someone with a killer robot. It'll just be the first with rules. With me today to talk about all of this is Motherboard senior writer Aaron Gordon. He's been following both stories. Uh, the railway strike for more than a year. You may remember he was on the show... In April, I believe, talking about the horrifying conditions of America's rail workers, and well, here we are. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on to Motherboard, or coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. You're always on Motherboard. It's a pleasure as always. Um, all right, so let's start with this railway st- rail. I don't know why I can't say that. Let's start with this railway strike. What is uh, what's going on? We we're talking on. Friday, December 2nd, a whole bunch of stuff happened this week. Can you kind of run us down what's going on? Yeah, if you think talking about this is hard, just wait till we get to precision scheduled railroading, Um, (laughs) which is a very hard thing to say three times fast. So what happened this week was, well, actually, we should go back uh, to mid-November when the two largest. So so the. There are 12 rail unions involved in this negotiation with five of the largest freight rail companies in uh, the country. And so obviously this is a very complex negotiation. And so once the tentative agreement in September, the Biden administration helped broker a tentative agreement between the railroad companies and the 12 unions. And the tentative agreement uh, was then voted on by all the 12 unions, uh, the members of the 12 unions. And in mid-November, the two largest and most influential freight rail unions tallied their votes and basically it was a very narrow result in both directions one union uh narrowly agreed to the contract by i think about 54 percent of the vote and the other union which goes by the abbreviation of smart td uh they they actually have have like two sub votes within their union absolutely everything about this is more complicated than you think it's going to be um and within those two sub unions they split their vote one narrowly approved the contract the the agreement and the other narrowly voted it down um so the short version is about like four unions rejected this tentative agreement. And what that opened the door for was a nationwide rail strike, because if only one union votes against the contract, um, there's basically like an agreement amongst all the other unions to respect the picket line, to show solidarity. Um, And once the, once it, once the four unions voted against uh, the contract, 
uh, basically that kicked the ball back to Congress because under this uh, law that was passed in 1926, there is, Congress has the ability to basically impose whatever contract terms it wants on the railroad industry because it's considered a matter of national interest uh, to have the railroads keep running. And so what happened uh, earlier this week is President Biden, before Congress actually did anything at all, President Biden came out with a statement. I think it was late on Monday night, basically asking Congress to impose the terms of the tentative agreement on the union on the freight rail unions. Uh, so again, to recap, this was Biden who considers himself the most pro-labor president in history, telling four unions that voted against a tentative agreement that he actually wanted to force them to abide by that agreement. And Congress what's his, justif- what's his justification? Uh, his justification is that it, it would be so detrimental to the national economy to have a freight rail labor strike. And that the terms of the tentative agreement are fundamentally good for workers, uh, you know, in his mind, that uh, it's in that it on balance, it's in the national in the national interest to force this agreement on the workers to prevent a real strike. And Congress dutifully went about its business and did this. Um, The House passed the legislation uh, I think it was on Wednesday and the Senate passed it yesterday. Um, A little coda to this is House progressives also included an amendment that would include an additional seven paid sick days in the tentative agreement, which is above and beyond what the agreement already has. That narrowly passed the House basically along party lines, and it got 50, I believe it was 53 votes in the Senate, but it needed 60 to pass, so it did not get included in the final agreement and that's where things are um biden said he's going to sign it as soon as it gets to his desk and then uh then it's over now i know you've been talking to a lot of railway workers what's their reaction how are they feeling right now so i've been talking to i've talked to hundreds of railroad workers over the past 18 months for various stories i've been doing on this general subject um and absolutely everything that has happened so far is basically exactly what they expected from the very beginning. Absolutely none of this has been a surprise, but that doesn't mean they're not feeling defeated and disappointed by the whole thing. Um, The general vibe was this was how it was going to go. Um, And once it happened, a lot of people are going to quit because they viewed this as their kind of like last chance to win a better life on the railroad. Um, they view this as kind of the last sign that all the power that they don't have any friends in the halls of power, that they have no way to fight for the kinds of things they want to improve their lives. Um, and so the vibe I get, and this is something that other reporters have reported on too, and you know, it doesn't really seem to be a controversial take, is that like we're gonna get basically a slow motion railroad strike over the course of several years just by the depletion of the workforce through attrition. And they're not going to be able to hire people back fast enough as they leave because the conditions on the railroad are so bad. And so by averting a short-term railroad strike, we're inviting a much longer, much slower bleed that's going to result in a very similar kind of disruption to our way of life. What were the conditions of the, these contracts 
what was so bad about them? So the contract itself has a a maximum of 24% pay increase, which sounds like a lot. But keep in mind that that the negotiations over this contract have been going on for more than two years now. Nobody's gotten a raise during those two years, and inflation has been very high. Um, And the 24% raise is prorated over the next couple of years. So it essentially is a 24% raise over five years, which, given the rate of inflation, is is not terribly significant. It's obviously it's obviously like better than nothing, but it's not as much as it sounds like when you just say 24%. It's not like starting on January 1st, workers get a 24% raise. Um, they, they have like, there are some very modest improvements to their health care, which is generally quite good. Um, but the biggest thing is that workers do like pay was never the problem uh healthcare was never the problem the problem that workers are so upset about is the railroad industry has been slashing costs left and right absolutely decimating their own workforce to try and save a buck over the last several years and to simply make it so they can keep running trains. They've instituted incredibly draconian attendance policies that have workers basically not living a life outside of the railroad. Their work-life balance is, is just absolutely non-existent. And workers are getting sick. They're getting burned out. They're, getting, they're, they're just terribly stressed all the time. It's just a, frankly, terrible way to live. And uh, they were trying to get some semblance of work-life balance reinstated through this contract. And the way this has generally been been simplified, and I would argue oversimplified in the national media coverage, has been to characterize this as an issue of sick days. And while that's certainly true that workers want more paid sick days that they can actually take to see their doctors, it's an oversimplification of what the issue actually is, which is that workers are trying to essentially force railroad companies to adequately staff their own trains and railroads so that they can run the service that they promise to shippers and to the American public. How many, let's hover around the sick days thing. And I want to talk about it because it is kind of every headline, you know, it is kind of the way that it's being framed. I'm curious about why specifically, Uh, how many sick days do they get now? How many were are they going to get in the new contract? And more importantly, can they use their sick days? Yeah. So, like, first of all, I just want to say like, I'm sympathetic to kind of the way it's been covered covered as a sick day issue because actually getting into what the problem really is is like is complicated and hard and difficult. It doesn't like easily summarize into a headline. So, I am symp- sympathetic to that like kind of shorthand version, but. The, the the kind of like short answer to all of your questions is they don't really get sick days. They have a certain number of days off that they can technically access. But the problem is there's no reliable guarantee that they will actually be able to take those days off. And to explain why, I have to get a little bit into how freight railroads actually work. Um, the thing with... So you think of trains and you think of schedules, right? Like most people, when if they, you know, we live in the U.S., so maybe you haven't taken a train in a long time. But like 
in most countries where people take trains regularly, they're used to running on schedules. You know, uh, the train is supposed to leave at a certain time. And so the workers who work on those trains also work according to schedules that they can that are highly predictable and they can you know work in advance. That is not how freight railroad in America works. The way freight railroad in America works is the companies wait until the trains have enough goods attached to the locomotives that it's profitable enough to run that train. Now, that could be a mere matter of hours after the locomotive gets back into the into the rail yard. It could be a matter of days. It could be a matter of weeks. It could be that a locomotive literally just sits there waiting for more goods to come. What this means is that for workers, their schedules are highly, highly unpredictable. And what the new attendance policies essentially, it, it, let me back up for a second. Until this year, the, what the, the schedules that workers broadly had, and again, there are lots of exceptions here, but broadly, the people who actually worked on the trains had like a roughly 75% on, 25% off schedule. And when I say 75% on, I mean, they're either on a train, they're in some other city that the train has gone to, sitting in a hotel waiting for a train to come back. Or they're sitting at home waiting for a call saying, be at the rail yard in you know less than 90 minutes, the train is ready to go. Uh, that's 75% of their time. And 25% of their time is theirs. They're not on call. They can't be called to come work on a train. It's theirs. Broadly, five weekdays a month, two week, two weekend days a year, uh, a month. So seven days off a month total was how it used to be. It was a tough life, but it was one that they made work, generally speaking. This year, the railroads have kind of across the board instituted much, much stricter attendance policies. Instead of 75%, they're now on call 90% of the time or more. And the way the attendance policy works is it's a point-based system, and you can only get more points if you work you are on call for 14 consecutive days. And you lose points if you miss a call, if you take a day off for any reason, pretty much, except for like your pre-scheduled sick days or, you, you know, like the number of days the railroad gives you off a year. If you take those, you don't lose points, but you also reset the 14 day clock. So basically, the long and short of it is it's extremely difficult to get more points and extremely easy to lose points. And if you lose the, your and you start with like an allotment of 30 points. And if you lose those 30 points, which, by the way, you could lose from taking just two days off, then you, you then you get reset to 30 points and you have like an investigate, you know, like a disciplinary investigation institute instigated. And then if you lose those second 30 points, you get 15 final points. And if you lose those points, you're fired. So what happens if, you know, I'm halfway through my 14 days and I get the flu? Like legitimately, I have the flu. I have to go to urgent care. They give me the flu. They give me the test to to see if I've I've picked it up, and you know it pops positive. So in that case, you can uh, try and take a sick day, but your boss can also just tell you no and call you in if you're called into work. Um, you can also just try and ride your luck and hope you don't. Don't get called to a train until you get better. Um, if you get called for work and you don't show up, you could just take the point hit, but you'll get 
I think you'll lose. I'm trying to remember exactly how many points it is. It's like somewhere between 10 and 15 for every day you don't show up. Um, so you don't so, actually have sick days. That's right. The sick days are largely like you, you could take them in theory, but in practice, it's much, it's very difficult to actually use them. And so all this conversation about like, this is about getting paid sick leave. Um, the railroad workers I've talked to are, have been very skeptical from the jump that even if they won a contract that awarded them seven more paid sick days or whatever, they don't have any guarantees they'd actually be able to use them. So they were looking for not only more allotment of sick days, but also a mechanism by which the railroad could not de- deny them. And that was essentially a hard line in the sand that the railroad companies were not willing to cross. And ultimately, uh, the Biden administration and Congress sided with them. I mean, they didn't they didn't impose any type of any terms on the contract that would have done that. So ultimately, the railroads got what they wanted. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We are back on with Aaron Gordon. We are talking about the railroad strike. I think I've decided to say railroad instead of railway. Some, some, for some reason, that W trips me up. Uh, we're going to talk about killer robots in a second, but I do have a few more questions. I have a complicated one. Let me see if I can ask it the right way. Um, so I'm thinking about like the political calculus of somebody like George, George, Jesus, of <laughs> Joe Biden looking at the railroad workers' plight. Um, so at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how narrow the margins of the victory were for the people that rejected the contract and wanted to strike, right? If you're somebody like Biden on the outside looking in at this, it sure seems like the railroad workers are conflicted, and maybe this is a time when you can put the thumb on the scale. But it's more complicated than that, right? It's more complicated than that for like many different reasons. The first complicated, the first complication I'm going to throw in there is we should not interpret the votes on the contract as a vote for a strike. And I'll tell you why. Because before the contract, before the vote for the ratification comes up, like during the negotiation process, the unions held strike authorization votes. And these passed by like 99 plus percent. Railroad workers are pissed off and they want to strike like that. I mean, I should rephrase that. They don't want to strike because they don't want to like destroy the U.S. economy, but they want to exercise their collective power to try and influence their working conditions for the better. Um, When it came time to vote for the tentative agreement, right. At that point, they knew what the what the deal on the table was. They knew it wasn't going to address their concerns. 
they knew that if they voted against it, the overwhelming likelihood was Congress was just going to force it down their throats anyways, or maybe even a slightly worse contract, which was what the Presidential Emergency Board recommended back in August. The tentative agreement was like a very slight improvement on it. I think it had like one extra sick day allotment or something. So when when a lot when a lot of workers went to vote on the contract, what I was hearing from a lot of workers was that there was a ton of apathy and just general um, kind of complacency with the whole process. Like people didn't really know how to like whether to vote for or against the contract because it was hard to weigh what a vote actually meant in the long run. When if it came time to asking workers like are you mad about your working conditions for these very specific reasons? Would you like to take collective action against the railroads to exercise that discontent and or show that discontent and exercise your power? Then the vote was just like incredibly overwhelmingly. Yes, we want to do this. So that's the first complication I'll throw in. The second is from Biden's kind of like political calculus perspective. Look, I think, I think there's a pretty broad consensus among the left progressive uh, uh, spectrum right now that he done fucked up Royal to put it in a technical term. Like it is really, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why it's really bizarre to me that he came out with a statement urging the tentative agreement to be in, to be forced upon workers before Congress even did anything. Um, it put his foot in the, in the ground in on a position that is completely anathema to the kind of, way he generally talks about himself as extremely pro-labor. And I don't think he had to do it because by all indications, Congress was going to pass this anyways. And they passed it with a veto-proof majority, I believe, in both in both uh, chambers. So why did he feel the need to put himself out there as being for this contract that the workers rejected when he could have been like, I'm against this contract as written, give these guys more sick days, you know, get me those seven sick days so we can at least say we did something for them. And then I'll sign that or something to that extent. Um, there are just so many ways he could have played this to appear more pro labor than he did. Like the statement he put out was li- literally said, I'm pro labor, but, and it's like, you know, it just he I think he really miscalculated this on a huge scale. Um, and P, and like unions across the board are noticing what he's doing. And uh, it, they saw what he did in a very public way. And I think are um, very confused about why he did it and what it means for the administration's support of the of the burgeoning labor movement in general. I mean, what does it say about a president who is only pro-labor when it's easy to be pro-labor. Does that really make you pro-labor? Um, I'm not, I, you know, I, I think that there are really good questions to ask about his commitment to the labor movement as a result of this. I, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Please, please let me know if you know something it, else there. It does. I just keep thinking of the cynical headline I would see if he had, if he had gone with the pro-labor route, right? Sleepy Joe cancels Christmas something of this right. nature, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it would have been, first of all, I don't think he had to go full let the workers strike, you know? You could just go, like, he could have just gone with, we've heard it loud and clear from the workers by rejecting this tentative agreement. It does not give the workers what they were looking for. So we 
as and it's been also clear from the three years of negotiation that the railroads are not willing to meet them in the middle on their very legitimate cl- concerns. So we as Congress need to step in and give them another seven days of sick leave, you know, or something like that. Um, that's like kind of a middle road solution he could have done where he's saying, I'm not advocating for us to allow a strike, but we do need to get to help the workers out a little bit. That's the whole reason we have this Railway Labor Act of 1926, because before that, railroads felt like they could just do whatever the fuck they wanted and impose whatever kind of horrendous working conditions they wanted on railroad workers. And they did. And it led to thousands of railroad workers dying while building and running the nation's economy. And, uh, you know, he could have he could have done something like that, but he didn't. And I think that's something that everybody's noticing. So give me the the apocalyptic scenario here. What are the consequences of this going to be? Well, I first started writing about railroad issues in uh, 2021 when I came across a YouTube video that a uh, kind of like mid-level union rep recorded. And at the time I watched it, it had six views. But he was basically warning the American public that everything he was seeing on the roads was geared towards inviting a catastrophe. And by catastrophe, I mean turning a freight train carrying fuel, toxic you know, like uh, uh, freight trains carry hazardous materials. They carry petroleum. They carry fertilizer. They carry chemicals that we use uh, for all kinds of industrial processes because it's generally considered and is much safer than moving these things by truck. It's also cheaper. But for the, for pur- the purpose of this conversation, it's safer. What he was warning the American public about was that he was seeing such poor maintenance practices such dire cuts across all lines of railroad operations, including maintenance, including uh, procuring new material that ensures things run functionally, including making sure workers are awake and alert for when they're actually conducting these trains. And he was worried that there's going to be a circumstance where one of these trains is running through or by a major population center, something goes wrong and it turns into a giant bomb and it explodes or it turns into a giant dirty bomb and it releases toxic chemicals into the air. This is not some, this, these are things that have happened before. Uh, a very famous case was in 2013, I believe in Canada, um, just over the border where a conductor basically lost control of a train because the railroad that had that owned the tracks had basically stopped doing maintenance on the tracks and the and the trains and the brakes didn't work and the train basically rolled down a hill into a town center the train was loaded with with petroleum it rolled down a hill into the town center in the middle of the town derailed exploded and I think like uh, 120 people died, 80 people died, something like that. Like the town literally exploded. Um, it was a massive catastrophe. And he, he's ba- he was worried that this would happen again. 
and I reported that story out, and he was hardly the only one. This is a widespread fear across the industry, and I don't think it's something that is totally unfounded. I don't think they're doing it as like some kind of negotiating tactic to get a few extra percentage points on their salaries, right? Too many of the people I talk to don't even work in the industry anymore and have no real incentive to like be saying this anymore. Um, they're just, they're worried. They're concerned. That's one thing that uh, we should be worried about is just our, our general health and safety. The other thing we should be worried about is we've spent the last two years talking about supply chains, right? Like Americans probably uh, have more interest in the ins and outs of how the supply chain works now than ever before. Um, and it turns out that a major bottleneck in our supply chains are the freight railroads. Over the last five years, freight railroads have slashed their workforce by 30% to try and increase their profit margins so they could pay off their Wall Street investors with increased dividends. BNSF, which has the most egregious attendance policy of all the major railroads and uh, some of the biggest operational issues, had reported a $6 billion profit in 2021. So they're making a very clear choice about where their priorities are. And what we should be worried about is that the Biden administration has basically affirmed their approach has basically told them through its own actions that it is not going to step in or interfere with their general management philosophy. Uh, And so they're going to continue to cut. Workers are going to continue to leave. And the American railroads are going to continue to be a tremendous supply chain bottleneck. And that's a huge driver of inflation because the railroads have essential monopolies on their routes. They can charge basically whatever they want, run their railroads however they want. And by and large, their customers don't have a lot of choice. You know, if you're a if you're a fertilizer shipper, you basically can't ship your fertilizer by truck. Like, I mean, practically speaking, not only is it more dangerous, but it's also so much more expensive. It's a bomb on the highway. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right? Like, and and there's, like there's way more accidents on the highway than there are on rail still. Yeah. And I mean, like, look. And not only that, even if you think these people don't care about safety, like there are federal regulations around this stuff. And also, like, even with the railroads charging so much more, the difference between the cost drivers of, a, of you know, shipping something heavy and dense via truck and highway are just completely different. So that being said, you know, if freight rail companies decide they want to start charging more for this stuff and they can and they have to, quote, accommodate for increased labor costs, um, which I think is just a lie. But, you know, that's that's my personal opinion. Um, that's a huge driver of inflation because that fertilizer goes to grow more food. And now the farmers say, well, you know, we got to deal with all these rising shipping costs. And so that leads to increase that leads to higher grocery bills. Um those are just two examples of how this is going to continue to get worse if we countenance this kind of management philosophy that basically funnels money from railroad industry profits to Wall Street investors rather than reinvesting those that money into its own business through hiring more workers and uh you know reinvesting in its infrastructure. It's a it's also the kind of thing that could just kind of metastasize and plug along, not in a way that is catastrophic to American society, 
but just in a way that makes everything a little bit worse, you know, makes everything a little bit more expensive, makes everything a little bit slower, makes workers a little bit more miserable, makes the labor movement a little bit less effective. So business as usual in America. Exactly. I think one of the, you know, I wrote an article uh, that published this morning about 500 uh, labor historians in the U S who signed a letter basically telling Biden he fucked up. Like, they're like basically saying, I mean, like that's me paraphrasing it, but they were basically like, this was a moment for Biden to actually prove he is pro labor by make by making a big call in a pro labor way, in a very public national headline way that people would notice. And what we've seen time and again in U.S. history is transportation labor negotiations, especially railroad labor negotiations ripple throughout the economy and ripple throughout the labor movement when the government steps in to put down a railroad strike the rest of the uh union landscape notices the rest of the business landscape notices and they notice the priorities that the government has set likewise uh when the government steps in to support workers in railroad labor strikes which happens a lot less often but has happened in the U- in the US history most notably uh when Woodrow Wilson basically gave the workers what they want to prevent a railroad strike during World War 1 um again the labor movement notices and there was a huge boom in the US labor movement after that and so what Biden has done with this i think probably the most realistic and uh detrimental consequence is he has sent a very clear signal to the rest of the burgeoning U.S. labor movement. This is a tremendous time in U.S. labor and U.S. labor and union uh, enthusiasm that actually the government doesn't have their backs. And actually, the Biden administration is not as pro-labor as it says. And I think that's going to, in ways both obvious and not obvious, hurt the U.S. labor movement in a way that he really didn't have to. So let's talk about something more cheery. Uh, you want to talk about killer robots? Yeah, let's talk about killer robots. Uh, I don't have a killer robot here, unfortunately. But you've got a bat. You've got a baseball bat there in the background. That's my defense against killer robots. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's going to help you against killer robots, Aaron. I'm sorry. Well, you don't think it'll help when a robot slowly approaches me from 100 yards away holding a bomb? Well, you know, if you're if you're in a garage and you've never seen a killer robot before armed only with an assault rifle, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'm getting <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves. We got to think about these things, man. They're here, all right? <laughs> I you know, you you make fun, but I do we do have to. Any but let's Let's talk about the city that is actually thinking about this um, and writing some of its some of the laws down. What's going on in San Francisco? Yeah, so San Francisco just passed an ordinance or a new city rule that says that basically allows the San Francisco Police Department to kill people with robots. It's it's just that simple. Like that's what it says. Uh, it allows it, and it it it. it the the kind of more technical language is that it expands the city's use of force rules from human police officers to robot police, you know, robots uh, deputized by the police department. Now, uh, I'm, being, I'm being facetious here, like, you know, robots that the police department owns. To be clear, um, not, not autonomous, something being steered by a human right now. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, so something that like a human is going to be the person that, that chooses to push the button that kills someone. They are doing it through a robot though. Yeah. So these robots, um, like so many of the militarized police equipment that we have in this country originates from the armed forces. Um, they're typically, so these are not like the, the, at least the way the police department kind of characterized their ambitions. These are not the kind, like the spot robots that have been like the, that have been equipped with assault rifles. Um, these are bomb disposal robots. That would otherwise be rather than disposing of bombs, they would be equipped with bombs and basically be little suicidal things, I think, is the is the way that uh, the police department has generally characterized the way they would use them. Right. And because like this is this has happened before this happened in was it was 2016 in Dallas. I was living there at the time. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, there was a man, uh, Michael Xavier Johnson, who was killing police officers in Dallas. Um, he was on like a rooftop, right? He or something. Yeah, it was not. I mean, he had been. Yes, he was on a rooftop. It was. It was a long. It was a very weird, intense time in the city, um, because it took place, you know, over a certain amount of time, and like they knew they were they were looking for a specific subject or a suspect and. Like it was also this time where there were a lot of protests going on in the city and a lot of people walking around with assault rifles. It was a whole, you know, it was a whole that's thing. That's a thing you can do in Texas. Yeah, exactly. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's Texas. Um, and they get him cornered in a parking garage. Uh, and they kind of, he is not, their story is, and I, you know, I believe them, uh, is that he was not going to go peacefully. So they put explosives onto a bomb disposal robot. Um, they knew if they, if men were used to approach and apprehend him, the people were at the very least going to get shot. Some of them were probably going to be killed. And instead of doing that, they sent in a bomb disposal bot with C4, I think, strapped to it and detonated it and killed him. Um, and this was the first domestic use of a, a killer robot, essentially remote controlled death. Uh, so I think it's wild that it took this long for someone else to write the rules down. And I think it's interesting that it's San Francisco. What do you make of that? Yes. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And, uh, part of it has to do with another recent ordinance that the city passed regarding the police department's ability to view private camera live streams, uh, for, general crime fighting purposes. And this was an extremely controversial measure in San Francisco for two reasons. One is in 2019, San Francisco passed uh, an ordinance banning the use of facial recognition by government agencies, including the police department. And this was an extremely kind of progressive move by the city that signaled uh, a real desire to limit the amount of technological spyware slash use cases for that kind of surveillance technology for policing purposes. Um, But then COVID hit and the post COVID crime wave uh, hysteria had started and really took hold in San Francisco. San Francisco is probably one of the cities most grappling with this like law and order versus, uh, 
uh, civil rights question of any city in the country at the moment. Um, and the live streaming of private cameras very much got wrapped into this debate. Basically, the police department argued that it would help them in some cases for solving crimes to be able to view live streams of private cameras. Um, I'm I'm super not clear on how that would work because the police department has always been able to view like recorded footage, right? That's a thing that like every police department in, in the country can do with either an owner's permission or a warrant. And that has obvious benefits to fighting crime, right? Or like catching criminals. But like, I am super unclear on how viewing live footage is going to help you with that because it basically means you have to predict in advance when crime is when and where crime is going to happen. Um, And that's just and if you can do that, it seems like it would be better to simply send some cops there to arrest the person rather than have some police officers view the crime remotely and do nothing about it. You know, it's just like, it's really super unclear. Well, when you can send a robot. You, you can do, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so like the, the argument the police department made was like, there was a big conflict over whether they could use this technology during first amendment events, like protests and stuff. And that, the, 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 that was because the police department did use private security cameras from business improvement districts during uh, the George Floyd protests in 2020. And this was incredibly controversial. Um, they, they got sued by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the ACLU for doing that because they technically weren't allowed to do it according to the lawsuit. Um, I think that lawsuit is still winding its way through the courts. But this ordinance basically guarantees the police department can do it again in the future. And they say they don't want to do it for all First Amendment events. They just want to do it so that they can, like, manage crowd control and that kind of thing. But it's incredibly broad. They can essentially do it whenever they want. And they can just say, like, oh, we were worried about crowds, you know, or something and and get away with it. And so that just passed in September. So this police killer robot thing is, like, right on the heels of it, right? So everyone's very, you know, still upset about that. And one and and. The main concerns, uh, as you can imagine, is that like nobody wants the police to have a fairly wide uh, uh, berth to be doing essentially extrajudicial extrajudicial killings with robots. Um, it just feels like, at least to privacy and civil rights advocates, like a Rubicon that they don't want to cross. Um, and that's been largely the, the the pushback against the rule. I think they already have a monopoly on state violence and already routinely get away with extrajudicial killings. Yes. Um, Especially since the law just apply, the rule applies the same criterion to robot killings as human, you know, when human police officers kill, kill people. Right. So you're just, you're kind of codifying an extension of the violent of of the the new, the new weapon. Yeah. Um, And I think like, Broadly speaking to like any time a military technology is incorporated in civilian policing, it raises ser- raises serious concerns and alarms like these are the the incident in Dallas, I think, is pretty fair to say is a very, very unique case. It is not often that the police corner an extremely violent person who has a known proven track record of killing police officers in a way that like then makes it impossible for them to either, you know, use conventional force 
or otherwise detain the subject um, without humans. Like, that's just, it was a very unique situation, um, as evidenced by the fact that, to the best of anyone's knowledge, a robot has not been used to kill any suspect since then, right? Um, in, a, in a domestic policing context. And I think one of the big concerns in San Francisco is that while the police say they would only use it in similarly extreme circumstances, there's nothing in the ordinance to, to like enforce that. Like if the police decide they want to routinely settle, you know, use of force situations with a killer robot, there's technically nothing in the rules that prevents them from doing that. Also, why wouldn't you? Right. Like if you've, if you've already established that you want to use a robot when the risk to a human police officer is non-zero, well then how do you start defining risk to the police officer? You know, in the Dallas case, my understanding is it was extremely obvious that if that guy like came within rifle sight of a police officer, he was going to try and shoot them. Whereas yeah, he'd already generally, killed, he'd killed five people and wounded 11 more. So right. Like that's in, generally, in a short not, generally not the circumstances we find them in. And so what you end up with is, I think we've seen this generally with the way police officers engage with members of the public too. Like this is why we see police officers kill people so often is because they have a wide berth for interpreting what their own personal risk is in any situation. And so certain officers in cer- certain circumstances consider the use of deadly force warranted based on a very low bar or what I would argue is a very low bar. And uh, that's how you end up with people getting killed in highly controversial settings where like it doesn't seem like they have a weapon or they have a knife and the officer is standing very far away or like, you know, situations like that. And what I think people in San Francisco are concerned about is what if police officers start, you know, what if they chase a suspect, the suspect corners themselves in a, in a room or something. And the person yells like, I have a knife or I have a gun. Is that enough of a bar to then say, bring in the killer robot? Because then you basically have a situation of an extra, extra judicial killing that, uh, that person never getting a fair trial, you know, never getting, uh, tried for whatever you know reason they were being pursued by the police in the first place you can see how this spirals out of control not immediately perhaps but over time becomes a policy that we're very uncomfortable with i think that's a good ambiguous weird place to in that conversation i'm sure we're going to talk about killer robots on this show and policing again um i want to go out with a listener calling me on my bullshit do you want to do that Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the last time we talked, we were talking about community feedback and we got, and, and I went on a little bit of a rant on some of the communities in Texas that have like kind of uh, built their own cities that are free from, from regulations. Uh, well, somebody that works mm-hmm. in that space reached out to me. <laughs> nice. Uh, I was listening to the podcast. sounds like a great space to work in, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was listening to the podcast today about community feedback The allegation was made that developers have a free-for-all in red states, particularly in Texas. It's just false. The TCEQ commissioner's court in every county and code adopted everywhere make it such that a lack of zoning is not the jubilee it might seem to be. Um, Houston, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the county now. uh, That's going to vex me. But Houston uh, famously has pretty lax. Harris, I think you're right. Harris County. Uh, Harris County. 
now I'm having flashbacks to Alamo discussions. Let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> Harris County uh, famously lacks, lacks zoning laws. Um, anyway, he says, it's not the jubilee it might seem to be. Getting water and electricity to land outside of cities does usually require significant regulatory compliance. Anyway, enjoy the podcasts and your efforts. So thank you for that. I may have oversold uh, the wilding that goes out goes on outside of Texas cities. Um, but now I'm going to like do a deep dive into this so I can make my case the next time you and I talk, Aaron, and I'll come back. No, that's, that's fascinating because like, uh, there's, there's a whole string of regulations that developers have to abide by in unincorporated areas. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, I think like to the point of that podcast, right? Like they, they have to abide by the regulations, but it doesn't necessarily require community feedback process. Right. Um, which is kind of like what the, what the story was about, but that I think he's, I think he's generally right. Like we probably overstated both of us, the degree to which, like if you have a piece of land in an unincorporated area, you just like get some hammer wood and nails and start building. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you, you do still need electricity and plumbing. I mean, some people go without that, but if you're wanting to build, yeah. but I was talking about like the building of uh, like suburbs, essentially. Um, I was imagining your communities being like totally off the grid, like pe- like the, the wilding that you were talking about. There is some of that, especially Texas is a re is much bigger than, uh, than you think it is. Um, you know, it's like four really? hours. I think it's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Four hours between major <laughs> cities. I mean, when I lived there it was like, you get so used to driving. Everything is about half an hour away. At least you know, if you've got plans, you have to build in at least half an hour to an hour for travel just for that. Um, I mean, that's how I am. That's exactly what I think living in Brooklyn. I will just say like, <laughs> yeah, but like you're not in the car. You're on a train. No, or, I'm on my bike or a train. Everything is or, or walking. It doesn't matter. Everything is 45 minutes away. Literally everything. You want to go somewhere? It's 45 minutes away. Is it where the, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's going to be longer than 45 minutes walking, then you're biking. If it's going to be longer than 45 minutes biking, then you're taking the train. It's just like, it's going to be 45 minutes. Don't worry about it. So what I've learned is that Texas and Brooklyn living, no difference. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to say I'm more likely not to die on my way there, but I mean, I'd have to dive into the data on biking in Brooklyn versus driving in Texas. I mean, it really depends on on what part of Texas that you're driving in. Dallas can be a pretty scary place. It's like the Thunderdome out there. Somehow I liked it. I I don't know. Like there's an aggression there that the drivers here lack uh, in South Carolina. It really throws me off. I know you don't drive. This is like all, but it's like, I used uh, to man. I used to, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but they like every time I get back into Dallas, something like clicks in my brain, like, all right, I understand this. Like it's everyone for Mm -hmm. themselves. You got to be real defensive and yet aggressive. If you put on you your ever blinker, driven in Massachusetts. Yeah. My dad, like it's funny. My dad spent a lot of time in Massachusetts. He said the same thing. The people- Mass- Massachusetts is pretty wild driving wise. It's like, uh, uh, the, the, I feel like most other places I've driven, you can, there's a fair amount of predictability to most drivers, whether it's the culture is like aggression in Dallas or like placidness in, in South Carolina. In Massachusetts, it's like every single car is doing a random number generator type situation. And if an eight comes up, it's swerve right. And if a four comes up, it's swerve left or whatever. It's like there is just 
no predictability whatsoever to what anyone is going to be doing at any given time. Some car that's pissing you off because it's going like 50 in the right lane on a 65 highway is like all of a sudden going to start going 85. And there's just like no rhyme or reason. Like it is wild, man. It's wild stuff. Aaron Gordon, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through the railroad strike and uh, or lack thereof at the moment. And uh, the killer robots in San Francisco. I am gonna, I am gonna look into this this community thing because now it's gonna be, it's gonna make me uh, be like a dog with a bone. And the next time we're on, we're gonna talk about it. <laughs> I'm gonna we get need more to do facts. A whole, we need to do a whole cyber episode on driving cultures. I think that too. Yeah, driving cultures and uh, uh, unincorporated cities and townships in Texas. I can already <laughs> see the listener count just ramping up for those. <laughs> I don't like some of the Texas stuff is super weird. I should tell you about maybe do this on the show. Like the place that I was born and am from is like a Stephen King novel. Uh, As a small preview, there was one, one of the major churches in town was so scary that this, the town gathered together and burned it down in the seventies to try to drive them out and they rebuilt and the church that was burned down they are definitely the villains of the story i will just say that (laughs) uh so Uh, look forward to that you got a book to write yeah i've 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 thought about it um so if you like cyber (laughs) and you like hearing Garrett and i ramble (laughs) did my audio win okay there we go there we go the music's back baby (laughs) um Please subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch where you can see live versions of the show. I'm not going live this week because I've got a cold and I've been hacking things up uh, uh, while muted on mic while Aaron's been talking about the railroad. It's been unpleasant, but we will be back next week and we will be live again. Go to youtube.com forward slash motherboard or twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV and get notified when we go live. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Aaron, thank you again for being on. And uh, we will see you next week. Stay safe out there on the internet. It's getting crazy. How does appreciation feel to you? A rising rush of warmth? A building wave of confidence? At Reward Gateway Eden Red, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform.